You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to the 602 Club, Track FM's local watering hole. Um, I'm one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing. Uh, Christy is out this week, but she will be back next week as we celebrate 250 episodes. So we're really excited about that. Um, but here joining me uh, for this episode, as we're going to talk about Galaxy's Edge Black Spire by the one and only Delilah Dawson, is the one and only Bruce Gibson. I'm starting to worry because now that I think about it, every time I'm on the 602 Club, Christy's not on. I feel like she's trying to avoid me. Mm, I, it, I, have you been, you know, showering recently and like, you know, keeping yourself up and uh, not, not, not on the nights we record. So maybe that has <laughs> something to do with it. <laughs> oh goodness! Well. Um, I'm glad that you're here because, uh, I think this is going to be a lot of fun for us to dive into as, uh, we are looking at this second book in this, you know, uh, Galaxy's Edge series that they've been doing. And so, uh, before we dive into that, of course, just want to remind everybody that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the 602 Club, just type in the 602 Club and look for us there. Uh, we would really appreciate it if you are on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, uh, if you would give us a star rating and review. That does really help people find the show. And I can be honest, it has been quite a while since anybody has given us a star rating and review. Um, and when you do, we read your review out on the show. So please do that. Also, uh, you can find us on Trek FM uh, there on Twitter at Trek FM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. We've got our listeners only discussion group that Bruce is well aware of, uh, the Babel Conference, where you can talk about all things Trek FM shows with all of the listeners from around the network every single day. So type a Babel in the search field there on Facebook and you can find it. Or if you're on our website at Trek.fm, you can go to any of our show pages, and any of those show pages have a button that says Discussion, and you hit that, and it'll bring you right over. And then last but not least, uh, maybe you would like to write an email. Christy and I love getting emails from the listeners, uh, and do that at trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that comes to Christy and I. Uh, and then um, I would like to say a huge thank you to our associate producers here through Patreon, uh, Track FM is a really big network. If you look through all of the podcasts we're doing, you see we've got so much going on for the Star Trek network and all over the place. Of course, going beyond the Star Trek network with the 602 Club, uh, you can find so much here, but it costs a lot of money to put this together. So help us out over on patreon.com slash Trek FM. We have some wonderful associate producers here through Patreon. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Y. Millette, and Daniel Noah. They've been supporting the show and the network for a long time. And that's actually one of the perks you can get is being an associate producer here through the show through a certain contribution level. Honestly, in the end, every little bit helps. Um, but we do have some great contribution levels where you can get extra perks. Um, so if you like what we do here and you want to make sure it keeps coming to you each week, 
please, please, please um, go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of our team. Bruce, I wanted to ask you this before we get even into the book. Have you been to Galaxy's Edge? Bright Suns. Yes, I have. I have been to Galaxy's Edge at uh, Disneyland in Anaheim, California, and I did that the week of July 4th because I remember it was the holidays here in the U.S. that week. So, yeah. Um, and I actually got to see Vi running around Black Spire, which is really cool since she's the main character of this book. That is really cool. So what was your experience like then there at Black Spire Outpost at Galaxy's Edge? Oh, man. Well, you know, it's just you walk in and you're there. You're in a Star Wars universe. It's like it really is feels separate from the rest of the park. So in Anaheim, it is part of the Disneyland park. So you can get to it through like Fantasyland or uh, uh, New Orleans that through that area or whatever critter country. But then you kind of like, you know, you you just kind of transform yourself there. It feels totally separate from the rest of the park. So everything's Star Wars and, and you go into the stores and then we did the, the ride smugglers run on the Millennium Falcon. And, and of course there's the Millennium Falcon outside. That's the big attraction when you're there. But yeah, when, even when you go shopping to all the little stores, it, it does feel in universe. The only thing that doesn't feel in universe are the people walking around in shorts and flip flops, but the rest of it feels like Star Wars. And when I saw Vi, by the way, it was the th- I went to it three different times when I was there. It was when I was leaving. She was running by me. I was like, oh, my gosh, there she is. And she puts up a finger to her lips and says, shh. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to alert the First Order that she's here. Yeah, come on, Bruce. Jeez. I just got too excited. Trying to get her executed? Because <laughs> I've been looking for her the whole time, and then I finally saw her when I was leaving. That's pretty cool. So it seems like you had a pretty good time there at at, uh, Galaxy's Edge, and you would recommend checking it out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're a Star Wars fan, I would say, yeah, definitely go check it out. They have the cantina, Ogus Cantina there. I went into into that. Make sure you make your reservations the morning of. I did mine at 7. I made the reservation at 7 in the morning for like a 1 o'clock or 1.30 stopover. And uh, you could at that time you could spend forty five minutes in the cantina. They had like a time limit on it, and uh, I did have blue milk out. You can buy you know blue and green milk out in the main area outside of the cantina. Just walking around, there's a milk stand. Um, yeah, I mean, and I saw Kylo Ren and stormtroopers. I saw Ray and Chewbacca. I saw it all. I saw it all. It's all there. And you can build droids. You can build lightsabers. I didn't pay extra for that, but they offer that too. Yeah, um, our friend, our mutual friend, William, uh, had gone, and I went and saw him in Seattle. We went to a soccer game together, and then we hung out, uh, and he showed me the lightsaber that he built there. And I, I have to say, uh, it's it's a high-quality lightsaber. It is very hefty. That handle is actually really heavy, uh, and the blade actually is detachable, which is very cool. Um, there's a spot where you can change the, the kyber crystal in it to different colors, and that changes the blade color as well. So you don't have to buy different blades. You just buy, you know, different colored lightsaber crystals. So it's really neat. You know, I'm, and I'm really excited to go. I'm hoping to get to go before a celebration next year. Uh, actually, I'm sure a bunch of us will probably end up hopefully going together, uh, which will be, I think, a, just an absolute blast. 
uh, to be able to experience it together. Because yeah. I, I feel like that's kind of the thing. It seems like to me, Galaxy's Edge is the type of place that you want to experience with friends. Uh, you know, because you want to do the smugglers run together or you know you want to do um the rise of the resistance rise i think i think that's the ride is the is it the rise of the resistance, rise of the resistance the, yeah okay yeah that's the ride that is going to be open by the time we get there as well hopefully next year so yeah so uh, all uh, the reason i asked you that because uh this this book is all about like exploring black spire like that's the kind of the the whole gist of it. It's not just to tell a story. They're really trying to help people get uh, an understanding of what this place is like and kind of help uh, understand the you know the denizens that live there. Uh, you know, and so I wanted to ask you then because especially since you've been there, how do you feel like this book does with giving fans who especially maybe haven't been there like myself. Does it does it feel like the place you visited? Do you feel like the this book does a good job of like giving people the the look, the feel, the of cotton, the fabric of the Star Wars lives? Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, does this book do that kind of first thing, which is to help fans have a better understanding of Black Spire Outpost? Yeah, I think it's like. Imagine going somewhere on a trip and let's just say uh, you go to New Orleans and you go to the French Quarter and you walk around the French Quarter and then you pick up a book and it takes place in the French Quarter and it feels a little more real because it's mentioning things that you've seen there or you walked by and so you can really picture it. That's how it felt with this because as this book is naming, for example, like August Cantina, it was a place I've been to. So as Delilah Dawson is talking about, you know, the look of the cantina and the characters in there and what was going on, I really had a good visual feel for it that is different than just watching something on screen and seeing, okay, I've seen this in a movie. I was actually standing in there. So it has a different feel to it. And as you're walking around uh, Batu at Galaxy's Edge, you know, the, I remember so many things that then were later brought up in the book that I could think like, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And now it ties into the story. So in some ways, it does make it feel like I've been to the Star Wars universe even more so now, because as I'm reading a Star Wars book, it's like a location I've been to, which I thought I would never say, right? Because you know, it's a fictional universe. We can't go to these places that we watch or, or read about, but I've been there, you know, and I know it's not real and it wasn't quite like feeling like a hundred percent of the Star Wars universe. Cause like I said, there's, you know, tourists walking around, which is one thing it would be cool to go to uh, galaxy's edge, a bunch of fans. Like if they, if they opened up, like you said, for celebration and you can only get in if you cosplay. And it was just reserved for that one night and everybody's dressed in something Star Wars, like in universe. That would be really cool. But anyway, yeah, um, a lot of things that were described in this book really hit home to me. But sometimes I felt like it was a little too much, you know, like it was describing things. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I know about that. Yeah, I know about that. It's like I felt like it was almost like a checklist in some ways, too. It's like, yep. Okay, we got to name that location. Yep. We got to name that thing. Yep. We got to like, I feel like. I mean, that was the job of the book, but at the same time, it did feel like a checklist to me. 
Yeah, see, that's the thing that's... I just wanted to get your perspective because, you know, having not been there and then my only real experience with this is the, you know, other book that that we read, The Crash of Fate, that was uh, that Christy and I did. Whereas that book, I didn't really feel like it gave me a good representation of it didn't really make me feel like I was at Black Spire. It didn't really bring it alive. For me, this book does the exact opposite of that, where I I truly felt like this is a living, breathing place in Star Wars, the same that I would in any of the locations that I'd seen on screen, you know? So I felt like the way that Delilah Dawson was introducing us to all of these people who live there, giving us an understanding of kind of what their lives are like, um, you know, letting us in on different parts of their lives, you know, whether it's uh, Savvy, you know, who's the the junk trader or uh, who's, you know, strangely enough, a, a good friend of Laura Santeca, Laura Santeca, uh, and uh, or Ogagara, you know, the who owns the bar uh, and Doc Ondar and all of these type of people uh, and all the places surrounding them. You know, I, I felt like, again, this felt like a living breathing Star Wars city. And that was cool. And in and, and the same way that I would think of, you know, a most Eisley. Yeah. And, you know, to me, that was great because I haven't been to Black Spire. So I was really glad to finally get that. And I felt like Delilah did a very good job of just kind of a lot of times Star Wars books forget to paint the picture for you because they're just so used to us understanding what it is we're talking about. But this, I really do need Delilah to paint the picture for me, especially if I haven't been there. And I felt like she did. And that's one of the things I would compliment her most on is I felt like she did a really good job of that for those who have not gotten a chance to go to this. And because of her painting such a wonderful picture of this place, it made me want to go more which is i'm pretty sure exactly what they're hoping people will you know read this book if they haven't gotten to go and be like man i really want to go to galaxy's edge now <laughs> you know i wonder if it was actually easier for her to write the environment because she had been there because i'm sure she mm -hmm. visited the park or at least saw a lot of the concept art and such that she was able to really describe it because she was given so much detail and seen so many things as opposed to her just creating an environment. And I mean, as an author, I'm sure she, when she creates her own environment, she's trying to see so much detail and try to explain as much as she can. But if you actually see it, maybe it's even easier or maybe you feel more, maybe you feel more, maybe the author feels like she has to write more because she's been there. You know what I'm saying? It's just, or maybe she felt like mm -hmm. she even had to describe it more because people are going to go there. And I, I just, I, you know, it's it's one of those things where, again, um, I, you know, as we've talked through a lot of these Star Wars books together that have been coming out, one of the things that I've noticed, is, uh, say, just as an example, you know, in the Thrawn books that have come out, the Grisks, I still have no idea really what they look like. Yeah. They've never really been explained. Uh, and, and so I can't really visualize them very well. Other than kind of like, okay, they're alien. Um, but And you don't want to do that in this type of book because, again, you really want to make people feel like this is a quote-unquote real place in Star Wars. Just as real as that when you say Endor, they know what the picture. You know, when you say 
Naboo, Theed City, they know what to picture. You know, you need people to, to have that. And so what I just felt like is she did a good job of making me feel like I kind of even kind of understood the geography a little bit, even if all I've seen is like a map of this place. Um, the the area of Batu that we're in, kind of getting a geography of that. And again, that's kind of something you have to do if you're if you're creating a world whole cloth, and she's not having to do that. But she is having to explain it for for people who aren't quite as familiar with this as they are, say, you know, most Eisley again. Yeah, and the one thing I want to add to that is this whole book does not play, take place in that area of the park. I mean, that there's aspects of the book, but there's a lot of it that takes place in the rural mm-hmm. area or the jungles or whatever, and the caverns and stuff. So if anything, that was one thing I really enjoyed about the book because it expanded uh, Black Spire Outpost for me. Because it was like you're when you're in the park, you're in a contained area. You don't know what's beyond. And now while I was reading her book, it was like I had a feeling of what's beyond that area as if now it felt bigger to me. And it's almost to the mm. point that I wish, you know, I could almost imagine while I'm in the park that maybe if I just kind of like jumped over a wall, maybe I could get to that place. <laughs> but even though it doesn't actually yeah. exist. I can totally un- understand that. And I think, you know. It is one of those things where you do kind of see the limitations of of a theme park, you know, unless the entire theme park is only Star Wars, you know, like all of Disneyland was just a Star Wars place, then you could kind of create an entire, you know, cityscape and like you could, you know, go to uh, the caverns where, you know, they create the resistance base and everything and all that stuff, but yeah, that's the only downfall of that. Whereas, you know, in a book, you do get that opportunity to explore other areas. So, um, and I, I thought it was fun just too, because, you know, you've got all those different characters that are there at Black Spire Outpost. And, and to me, it was fun to get a chance to um, spend more time with them. And my favorite was the savvy character, you know, who runs the uh, scrapping yard. And the fact that he is this character to which, you know, we talk, I mentioned he's great friends with Laura Santeca and, you know, he's a big believer in the force and the idea of, you know, his, his desire is to see the galaxy back in balance. And, you know, along with Laura Santeca and, you know, learning a little bit more about him through the Poe comic and everything. Like these are really interesting threads that in this is era I would love to know more about because they're fascinating to me, and every time I get them in a book, I just kind of eat them up. And honestly, it's just because I, I really want more of this because I just find it fascinating. Because it seems like in this era, you know, the one person who was supposed to really kind of bring back this idea of the Force and the Jedi doesn't do a great job of it, and so you have these other characters like Alorsan Tekka or Savvy who are kind of holding that flame until somebody finally brings it back to full you know power and i'm thinking that's going to be ray obviously in the end but that again it's just a really fascinating thing for me and it's a it's a small part of this book but it is really interesting i also wonder now having been to galaxy's edge i'm starting to think now that we might see a cameo of this in the rise of skywalker a cameo. Okay, yes, let's talk about that real quick because uh, we've got a bet going in our, our Twi'leks of the Night group uh, about that idea. And 
even this book, um, you know, the fact that Kylo Ren is going to show up there, uh, it just feels like it's almost a precursor to being a part of the movie. Like the start you know? of the movie. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 The time frame, I think we're about a year off, but you almost get the feeling like, yeah, this could be the beginning of the movie of the First Order, you know, just ravaging places yeah. all over the galaxy. Hunting for the resistance. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and so that brings up a question then to of bridging the movies because we know that this book is set between The Last Jedi and uh, The Rise of Skywalker. And so how do you feel like this book does with that piece of the story? Well, yeah, it, it you know, when I first started listening to it, oh, by the way, there there's a clue. I listened to the audiobook. I didn't read the book. I usually read but this one I did the audiobook. But um I started wondering when this takes place. And if I remember correctly, some of it takes place a little bit before The Force Awakens, and then we get to the point where it's right after The Last Jedi, and that's the majority of the book of the story. And um I I feel like it really connected well because Vi is having communications with Leia. Leia's sending her on this mission because the resistance is so small, they don't have a base anymore, and so Vi is being sent on this mission to find some place that they could have a hidden base and recruit some people, and after watching The Last Jedi and seeing that they're down to almost nothing, this is that chance to, okay, we need to start rebuilding. And as this book progresses and as Vi is trying to form a base or, or find a base and then start to form it and try to recruit people as we fast forward to the end, it does start to lead to that first order finding out who they are, where they are, what's going on. It, I don't want to jump too far ahead because there is something I want to touch on at some point. Um, and that's about who called them out, who alerted the first order as to Vi being there. I do want to touch on that one at some point. But I think it did, it did connect well because I know we, between The Last Jedi and The uh, Rise of Skywalker is approximately a year. And I didn't feel like the book was a year long, but it feels like maybe half a year and it's getting really close to The Rise of Skywalker. And that connection of, you know, desperation of trying to form get ready to fight the first order because the first order is eventually going to come. Yeah. I am right there with you. I think one of the things that this book does really well, and, and you know, one of the story points of, of the last Jedi is, is that the resistance is down to like 12 people. It seems like uh, on, on the millennium Falcon and that's it. And so I think this book does a great job of, of showing the desperation of the resistance and just how little they have in the way of resources and of people. And that truly is seen here in the fact that the little bit that they send Vi and Archex away with is all that they have. Like, you know, when, when she's able to contact Leia and be like, Hey, we, we need help. And she's like, basically like, uh, you're on your own kid. Cause we got nothing, but you could do it. You know, like, uh, you you really sense the the frustration of um of Vi and even Leia at that point. She can't send help. They have nothing. They have no one else. 
you know, so they really are on a shoestring budget, you know, and, and so, um, or did they have shoestrings in, in Star Wars, you know, so I don't don't really know. Velcro maybe? Yeah. So, uh, it, on a belt class budget, we'll call it that. Um, so you just, you have very little left and, and I just appreciated that because I felt like it did a very good job of using this smaller story of trying to set up a resistance base here on Batu that will allow um, them to also recruit more members to resistance um, and find good people and everything. And, and all of that together, this story exemplifies the rest of what's going on in the resistance, which I'm sure we'll see, you know, parts of that in uh, the rise of Skywalker. Um, but this story does a great job of connecting without without them having to feel like they have to use the Leia character and, and all of that. Um, I still get that feeling of the rest of the struggle without having to see the full struggle of the entire Resistance. Yeah, and I was a little annoyed in some ways with the Vi character because she's the spy and so they made they portrayed the character as being one that is you know able to sneak around and keep secrets and such and i know she's on the planet to recruit but she seemed a little too open about why she was there to people and even to oga and who runs the cantina she's like the crime boss or basically the godfather of batu and I was like, boy, you know, uh, she hasn't even decided if she's going to actually establish the base there. She hadn't even found a location that she was willing to say, yeah, this is the location. And I know she's there to also kind of recruit. But if you're a spy and you don't want the First Order to know that you're there and you're doing this, I think she would have been a little more careful in just feeling people out as potentials without coming straight out and saying well i'm actually here from the resistance and and i'm looking to you know hire bring people in because then the first door is going to find out which they did so i thought she's not a very good spy so that was one thing that was a little annoyed with so did she go to the kaz school of spying yeah exactly because she's just like (laughs) yeah she i think her and kaz are related in some way but but i also like the well so yeah, I, I so a one. I just want to ask you one thing. Do you think that possibly that the reason her for being more open than she might have been is because they lost all of their stuff? Um, maybe that's part of it, but I still don't think she needed to be open. I mean, I don't know. It just, I, I guess, the whole thing for me is you're going to an area that is not under rule of the first order. They're, you know, in their outer banks. They're near the unknown region. So as she's finding out that there's people that didn't even care, like I, I don't need to be part of the resistance. You know, that whole thing. You know, the first order doesn't affect us. So for her to be just so open about it, just. I think she should have just spent more time finding a location. And if that's going to work, then maybe start to try to recruit people. But I, I feel like she was just too uh, loose with it for being a spy, whether she's got equipment or not. uh, I just, I just think she could have been smarter about it. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I, I, I remember, I do remember that kind of thought process in my head too, thinking, well, would you really want to be, quite so open with everything and then i was thinking well you know i mean the 
first order isn't here yet, but yeah, but what happens if people, you know, don't really like you and then they return you into the first order? So yeah, all of that was kind of running through my head as well. well. Especially if she's like, hey, do you want to join the resistance? And they're like, sure. Okay. Well, there's nothing to do yet. <laughs> you know, because she doesn't have a base there. They're not first orders there. There's just nothing to do. So, okay, you're a member of first order. We'll get to you. We'll, we'll call you. Don't call us. We'll call you. Well, and, and, but see, and that's where the thing was, is it almost felt as though, like, the people that, like, that's where it almost felt like the fact that they lost almost everything when they crashed and then they got all their stuff stolen while they were knocked out, um, kind of, accelerated the recruitment process because you know she's trying to recruit from people that could help her in in some of those areas so but i still think your your point is pretty valid it does seem to me as though maybe you know they should go to spy school a little longer in the resistance just just a possibility but what i did Um, like real quick about her character is that when you were saying there was a dozen people on the millennium falcon she was not one of them so that just shows that the resistance wasn't all there at that battle in the last jedi that some of them mm -hmm. were off on other missions and and you know in in the i do remember uh just to rewatch the the last jedi i'm so sorry and yeah i i (laughs) listened to the aggressive negotiations episode that has just come out you'll appreciate it uh, everyone, but um, they mentioned specifically that they need to find a base with a uh, a communications array strong enough to be able to reach their allies in the outer rim, and so it's interesting because it, this this book and that movie seem to like it would have been cooler if you knew they were talking about Vi who was out there, right? Unfortunately. The timelines don't match up because Vi doesn't leave for Batu until after Crate. Right. And so it's unfortunate that okay, so they've got other ones. Uh so yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned this being a bridge between the movies. What I was surprised about is the bridge between uh with the novel Phasma. Because I knew she was a character in Phasma, yeah. but I did not expect this to be so much of a sequel to Phasma as it is a book about Batu. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and that was surprising to me as well. And I think what I loved about that is that Star Wars is full of stories of people that have traumatic incidents happen to them. And it was interesting to me that a majority of this book is about people learning to overcome the trauma that they've been through. So Vi, who suffered at the hands of Cardinal, Cardinal who still suffers from the the indoctrination of the First Order uh, and trying to come out of that. Uh, you know, I mean, first, too, I mean, he was in a Jakku orphanage. Then he's a recruit for the First Order. And, you know, the psychological trauma of them, you know, forcing people to to believe what they do through brainwashing and, and manipulation is just incredible. So all of this book is about these people trying to overcome this. But then a lot of the people that we they recruit too have gone through a lot of these type of things. And so I feel like, you know, that's the thing that interests me so much about this is that we truly got an opportunity to spend time with people having to overcome a lot of those big type of incidences we see in the movies that like these are you know real people that they you know they're not superheroes that 
don't, you know, there's things bounce off of them. Like when they get hit, it hurts. When, when they have trauma, it impacts, you know, greatly. So I really liked this part of this book. So Matt, you're going to be shocked about this. So, okay. I, I like the force awakens and I like the last Jedi, but I, and, and I love Finn as a character, but our check, it's not that I like him as a character that I don't like him more than I like Finn, but I like what they do with his character more than they do with Finn in the movies. Because mm-hmm. the thing about Archek and Finn is they're, they're very similar. They've both been conditioned. They've both been raised. They've both been brainwashed for all intents and purposes to be a part of the first order. And what we see of Finn is he just kind of snaps out of it and decides, I, I don't want to be a part of this. And then he's just fighting against the first order. Archex is going, goes through a longer period of time of adapting and coming to terms with it and really starting to move, not all the way over to the resistance, but almost like he's in the middle, but, but little over towards the resistance side and trying to figure out how he fits in and dealing with his trauma, as you said, because what was done to him under the first order is traumatic. I don't get that sense with the Finn character. And so I love how this has developed that this is something that he has to get over this traumatic experience of having a life that he grew up in that he doesn't agree with and go against the people that were his friends or the people that he, all the people that he knew. And now he's got to adapt to himself with these other people that have a different philosophy and a different look at life. And so, you know, the pain that he goes through, although physical in this book, he's going through pain emotionally. And it's not that he's questioning what he needs to do. It's just, he's coming to terms with it. Yeah. There's a great quote in the book where he says, you know, I've been through some bad things and people have hurt me. Most of the time I managed to ignore it and hide it but it's always there lurking underneath. And what I've learned is that the only way out is through, that I have to feel the fear, acknowledge it, and do it anyway. Fear can't hurt you. And this, I just really loved just the message of this book, which is, you know, we all have traumatic, awful awful things hurt us, but in, in many ways, it just kind of reminded me of that old school John Wayne philosophy of like courage is not the absence of fear it's being scared to death and saddling up anyway you know that's kind of what we get in this story that the only way to get over it is really to move through it um and and to deal with it and to continue to go forward you know it's it's why you know when you they say you know you get knocked off a horse you get back on and and that's just kind of the thing about this and that the, the trials of each of these people and what they face, the only thing that can truly beat us is us. And it's when we give up. That's when we lose. And I think the thing about this book is it really dealt with so many of these characters in such a beautiful way that it doesn't deny the fact that they have pain, but they use this pain and they move forward. It's it's a little bit like Captain Kirk in Star Trek V. Like, I need my pain. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. So there you go, John Mills. Um, we got the Star Trek V uh, reference in. and I. But I think that there's a beauty in that. Like, because 
so much of our world wants to deny that pain exists or that, you know, uh, or we want to blame others or, or we want to like alleviate all pain. But in the end, like pain is good because it's, it helps us grow. It helps us, you know, move forward. And like the process of even dealing with the things that go wrong in our life is painful, right? But we come out the other side better people um, if we're willing to actually deal with it. And these characters are all willing to do that. They all painfully kind of deal with their situations and they move forward. But it's not only just the trauma, but the thing that I was really fascinated by and it's it's this beautiful moment where Vi is talking about how Archek said it had tortured him and that without a question that, you know, Leia Organa picked him for this mission and that if I can forgive him and move past and move on, then everybody should be able to. And to me, what I loved about Delilah's book here is it's not just about trauma, but it's about people being given a second chance and forgiveness, which is the, 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 I mean, you think about it like that's Star Wars. When you watch all six of George's original films, it becomes about a fall and a redemption. And so Archex has that same thing. You know, he has his fall of being a part of the First Order and being a character who's been like a, a you know, kind of abused into this. But it's also something that he kind of liked, right? Like he, he liked not having uh, to to think about what he you know uh, what was told to him uh, you know he just did what he was told you know he he liked that and so I just I, I don't know I'm I'm just rambling at this point but to, all all to say is I think Delilah did us a a real solid here with the way that she wrote this story and having us deal with this and and I think it helps it helps others be able to then deal with these things um because there's nothing wrong with having emotional trauma um but the the thing that's that's most wrong about is not finding a way through the emotional trauma because you're you're just willing to give up and these characters give us a great example of people who aren't aren't going to give up you know they aren't going to let it beat them and it's i it it was just to me somebody who's been through some things and you know had to go to counseling and all that kind of stuff and there's times i wanted to give up completely and just like end it all like this was a just it was a really it was a moving book for me personally yeah and and as you're talking and i'm thinking again about finn i'm thinking how interesting it would have been in the last jedi that instead of rose admiring finn and looking at him as a hero when she first sees him it would have been interesting if she had looked at him and didn't trust him because he used to be with the First Order. Like, you know, the Resistance members in the movies accept Finn readily. There's no questioning of, well, didn't he used to be with the First Order? How do we know we can trust him? Yeah, he helped. But, you know, it would have been interesting to see that relationship develop of Finn having to earn his place in the Resistance in in Rose's heart, you know, Rose is the character that would connect Finn to the resistance acceptance. And we see Rose later accept Finn. I think that would have been an interesting storyline. And I know that's not part of this book, but that's what this book makes me think is if somebody comes from that background into the resistance, like these characters, they didn't accept 
our checks right away. As a matter of fact, Vi didn't even tell them that he was a member of the first order. It wasn't later revealed. And then they didn't know, not only could they trust him, but they were even wondering if they could trust her because she hadn't been honest with them. And when you're in these situations, when you're in this period of war and when you're fighting against the first order, you know, there's a lot of trust and not trusting going on between just within your own group. You don't know who to trust or what to trust because some things have to be confidential. Some things have to be twisted in a different way. And so they come to appreciate our checks at the end uh, and realize that he was somebody they could trust. And because they did originally trust Vi, she says, if I can trust our checks, then you should know that you can trust him too. Yeah. And I, I think too, you know, the other thing in, in all of this, um, is that one of the best ways to kind of move out of of trauma is to is 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 to be able to find um, your place and your purpose, but also acceptance. And that's one of the things that um, you know is such a struggle for Archex as a character is he's he doesn't necessarily feel like he's he has a purpose because he's not being as quote unquote effective as he used to be because he's. He's got a bum leg now, you know, um, he, he can't do everything he used to be able to do. And so he, he doesn't see his worth because he's tied his worth into his work um, so much. And that our worth isn't just because of of the things that we, quote unquote, do. It's it's also just who we are as people. And, and what we see is that he becomes a person that is willing to support others, is willing to take care of others, is willing to do whatever he can to, to service others. And in the end, he becomes the greatest example of of love in that he sacrifices his life for everybody else in this little resistance band there on Batu to make sure that their mission can be accomplished and that, uh, you know, uh, they can blow up the ship and everything the way they want to, um, and that the first order won't hopefully know that they're there for a while, um, and that all happens because he's willing to to make the ultimate sacrifice. And so there's just a lot going on in the story thematically, and just a really I I just love it. I love it. Well, they even said to him, you know, you are contributing. Because he was like, you know, what am I doing? I, I'm not worth anything. And they're like, no, you're giving us some information. You're helping around whatever the campsite or whatever. Like, you, you're here for support and, and you're giving us, this, giving us intel. But he truly doesn't believe that he's done anything to help them. So when he does sacrifice himself at the end, I feel like it's his way of not just, you know, proving to them that he can do something for them. Even though they said he's doing something, I don't think he really believed that. And so it's like, I'm proving to you that I can contribute to this in a significant way. And of course, he's doing it to prove himself. And if he's going to sacrifice himself, why not go sacrificing yourself at the end with the feeling of accomplishment, of having to make a difference, having to do something that is honorable? Because he feels like after this, yeah. what's la what can he possibly do? What could he possibly offer? And isn't it interesting how that just also applies to Captain Kirk? Like, you know, don't let anybody take you off the bridge of that ship where you can make a difference from generations. Like, and that's what Archet wants. He wants the ability to to know that his life 
made a difference. And and what's beautiful about this is that the way that he makes a difference is by sacrificing his life for others, for a, a cause that he just started to believe in. And the reason that he's able to actually believe in it in the end is because of the way others have treated him and the forgiveness that he's been given by people like Vi, who he almost tortured to death. You know, I mean, there's there's just such a beauty in that. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, we get some new Resistance members. Uh, we got Dolan, Krykai, Zadie uh, as our new, you know, main members there uh, for the Resistance. What did you end up thinking of the, oh, and uh, how could I forget Polk? Polk, uh, the uh, ridiculous droid because uh, we always have to have a smart ass droid these days oh yeah you know i kind of like the droid he was i liked him being a smart ass after a while it was just like predictable you know everything he was going to say but actually delilah was using him less often as the story went so at the beginning of it he was very much the comic relief until things got really serious and then occasionally he'd say something that's kind of funny but i really liked his character uh i don't know what it was about Gosh, I was going to say, I think I like Dolan, maybe, was one of my favorites. But now that I'm thinking about the rest, I kind of like them maybe all about the same. I don't know what it was about Dolan. I think the thing I liked about Dolan is that he was very green. And his backstory with his, uh, well, he was living with his grandmother, I think it was, or was his mother. Mm -hmm. It was his grandmother. Yeah, he lives on like this, it's almost like a Mennonite type community there on Batuu. Yeah. And she didn't, he did all the work and, you know, but she expects him to do everything uh, she tells him to do, but he's a grown man now and he, you know, he can do things on his own and she just, she's very selfish. She just wants him to wait on her and take care of her and not live his own life. So I enjoyed his story and, and how he fit in with the group and just, he's kind of green when it comes to this stuff. And he's, you know, like, Hey, show me how to do this and show me what it's like. And he's got his big bike or whatever that makes a lot of noise. And, and then cry Kai was very, uh, very sweet, but, and, but very sweet, but also very tech savvy. And so I like that. She's like so intelligent with technology, but at the same time, very like, innocent i guess you know so i kind of like that and then zadie he's almost like the han solo of this book you know he's you know very suave but you know sarcastic but also a player and you know always kind of thinking for himself and then he kind of proves that you know he's part of the team so i I enjoyed all the characters actually yeah me too that was one of the things i felt like uh, that Delilah Dawson did the best was creating characters to which I really enjoyed when they were on screen as much as I enjoyed when Archex and, uh, you know, Vi are on screen uh, or on page. And I, I just think that's really important, you know, when you're going to add these characters to uh, the Star Wars universe to kind of create interesting characters. And some of them play off a theme, you know, like you mentioned Zadie kind of being the Han Solo-ish type character. But what was interesting about him is that he's even more so than Han, like this kind of wild playboy type character. So my wife and I are rewatching Battlestar Galactica, the, the new version. Uh, and she's never seen it. So she's seen it for the first time. And actually Zadie kind of reminds me of a moral, uh, Baltar 
Like, you know, it's not the genius part, but it's just that persona of like he's so boisterous and and loud and, um, you know, so full of himself, but he has a heart. And so that's kind of the character in, in many ways that he reminds me of, which was was fun. You know, I, I think that's enjoyable. Um, I think Crikey was probably my favorite of the new characters. I just really enjoyed her. I also really liked her story, the fact that it was it involved the the that her family had been in the Hosnian system when it was blown up. So that we got that connection with um, you know, what had happened in The Force Awakens. And when when you think of blowing up like a major system like that, you're going to lose a lot of people that in fact, uh, you know, it, it really has an impact on the galaxy. And so I liked that we paid homage to that, like that, you know, you, you destroy a system that's that heavily populated. We're going to find people around the galaxy who've been impacted by that. So I thought that was really nice. Um, yeah. And I just, I all, all in all, I want to see these characters again like i kind of would love that these characters if they showed up in you know the the rise of skywalker um you know just even in the background i would love to see them i just i think that would be cool um but i would also like to see you know delilah dawson and get a chance to uh, continue with these characters uh, again because i think they were good characters and i enjoyed all of their backstories and there are characters that I would actually want to spend more time with, which when you're writing this kind of tie-in fiction, you know, you want that. You want to be able to add characters that you want to spend as much time with as you would, you know, characters you've maybe seen on screen or then been established in other books. But I kind of felt that the way this book ended, that there is plans for a follow-up or Delilah's hoping mm-hmm. there's a follow-up because now this is what I was going to mention. I mentioned earlier that I was going to wait to talk about, but you know, they, she didn't know who, but someone alerted the first order of her being there and what she was doing there. And then at the end of the book, there was also mention about, um, there was something else where the first or, oh, when, uh, Kylo Ren is showing up. And, uh, again, she's wondering how he knew there's some informant, but we were never, unless I missed it, we were never in, told who that person was that was calling out which made me go okay well who was that that calls for another book yeah i i it made me wonder so you had the character remember who's kareki's um master or uh, treated him created kareki like he was his her master even though he was just an employer um but he was very sympathetic to the first order and he ends up dying in the book, but I wondered if it was him who had sent the message to the first order possibly because I, I don't know it, at least right now it was very difficult. I, I didn't feel like that they did a, a good job in the sense of like who else it might have been. Right. Um, he was the only one who seemed to be kind of, he mentioned other people feeling the same way uh, about the, the resistance. But I, I don't know. Uh, that's a great question. I'm just not sure. Yeah, because there was something in the end because they accomplished their plan of uh, blowing up the ship that was leaving Batu, the First Order ship, and creating it looking like it was a technical accident and that Vi had been dealt with and and everything. was. And so there should be no reason for the First Order to come back. And then she says something to General Leia 
about, you know, they're on their way here or something. And somehow somebody is, is, is relaying information to the first order. We don't know who there was something like that. Even at the end that made me go, okay, well, who was it? That means there's gotta be another book plan, <laughs> you know, cause yeah, I want to know who I, it is. I would think so. Yeah. So we might see these characters again is my point. Um, or like you mentioned, I, and I think it's kind of, it could be something that's a part of the beginning of the movie, you know, yeah, it could um, be. where we see, you know, Kylo Ren and the Knights of Ren taking over. What if, what if the planet where Kylo, this is total speculation. What if the planet we see in the trailer where tri- Kylo Ren is killing people, you know, running through the forest is actually Batu. You know, it, it would almost feel like a lost opportunity on Disney's part not to have Batu in this movie in some way. Because, you know, if they're trying to get people to come to the park, wouldn't it be great to go to Batu and go, yeah, I've seen this in a movie? Because that's how I feel about, like, you know, going to see, you know, the Harry Potter attractions at Universal. It's like when you walk there, it's Heck like, yeah. I feel yeah. like I'm on, you know, I'm in the movie. It's it's like the movie sets, you know. But when I go to Batu at Galaxy's Edge... It feels like a Star Wars location, but I've never seen it on screen. It's not a familiar location, but if I've seen it now in a movie, that that's a whole different play. I 100% agree. So um, so I kind of want to ask you real quick. It was interesting because we have the character uh, Savvy, and I think uh, you would say the name Yula. Uh, and it was fascinating to me. They have this close relationship with the belief in the Force, even though they're not Force-sensitive. And this this idea of like destiny that the force is is at work in the lives of people, even those who aren't force sensitive, and that the the, the force has a plan, um, and that that's why things work out even when we don't necessarily see how they work out now. If we look at the long run, we see you know. So I just thought that was a little bit interesting. Um, again, kind of adding to this this force idea of, uh, you know, people still truly believing in the Force in this galaxy. And to me, that stuff is always fascinating because th- there's such a a lack of it in, in this this era, I feel like. Um, and I'm all, I'm just, I'm like, I guess part of me is just so longing to know more about um, the Force in, in this era and just the for, what people think of the force in this era, and so anytime we get that in the book, I'm I'm just fascinating. So the idea of like the force as destiny was was fascinating to me. Uh, yeah, I think it's fascinating too, and I love anything about the force and getting more information about the force or creating more mystery with the force. I always enjoy that, but I I wasn't too much of a fan in it in this book. I like the idea that you mentioned, but because this is in the outer rim. And it had no Jedi and, you know, it, it seems like it's so separate from the core of the universe that I would just, I just kind of expected that nobody would really know anything about the force. Just like in a new hope where Luke is, you know, questioning Obi-Wan, the force, like what, what's that? You know, I expect these people to be similar because they're so separate from everything that's going on that the force is probably something very foreign to them. And 
and it's fine because you know this is a big galaxy and people do talk and so yeah maybe there's some people that are somewhat familiar with the force and have their beliefs in the force so i accept that but then when they start saying to each other may the force be with you may the force be with you it just seemed too familiar i just wanted to be a little feel a little more foreign to these people it's something that you know i've heard of the force this is kind of what i think it might be this is what i kind of believe in it and it's a little different from maybe what we're used to but when they start saying may the force be with you that's when i was like no i want it to feel more distant more out there yeah i i can see a little bit of what you're saying um i thought it was interesting that specifically savvy who who owns uh you know this salvage shop that he specifically recruits people with it, that have what they call the gleam yeah. Um, like people that that are basically in, in some ways that represent the light side of the force, like the, the aspects of the light side of the force that we would think of, like kindness and, and selflessness and those kind of things. And so it it made sense to me that we would have that group feel like that. But it wasn't everybody on Batu that felt like that because, you know, then the grandmother, you know, of Dolan is just like the force. What's that? Who cares? You know, um, so we 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 have this other aspect. And then, you know, you kind of like have the trickled down like idea of the legends of like Luke Skywalker that have kind of made their way across the galaxy. And it didn't seem as foreign to me because Batu is a, a spaceport of people going in and out. You know, so it wasn't quite as foreign there, but I can still, I mean, I can still see your point of it, you know, how, how far do you push it? You know, yeah. like how, how far are we going to push this? I think that's what I want is, and it doesn't have to be this book, but I'd like to see some stories where it's part of this universe and, and, but the people are like, what's the force or who's Luke Skywalker? Mm -hmm. Like I'd, I'd like to, it yeah. makes it feel a little bigger to me. If not, everybody's familiar with it. And even Vi's talking about, Oh yeah. When Leia got sucked out into space and she was out there and she opened her eyes and I'm like, did she watch the movie? Like, or did, <laughs> did <laughs> yeah. Leia just like show up and tell everybody yeah. gather around everybody. Let me tell you exactly what happened while I was out there. <laughs> you know, there's just, let things me like tell that. you about my, Mary Poppins moment. Um, so I'm out inside. I'm outside of you know, and yeah. So I get it. Uh, no, I get what you're saying completely. So the last thing about the book that really struck me, and part of this was kind of in response to something that you know, I felt like the Last Jedi. One of the things that I disliked the most about it is how it hurt the. Um, the First Order in, in that I didn't feel like the First Order was scary anymore because they had kind of made, especially the Hux character, yeah. Dark Helmet, basically, <laughs> from uh, Spaceballs. Yes. Uh, and so this book, I felt like, helped revitalize the First Order and its scariness um, in the way that they used the Cath character, uh, but also in the struggle that it is for Vi to recruit new members on Batu, And this idea of this fight for freedom where how do you recruit people who have no interest in, you know, uh, this, this first order thing and anything outside of, of their own front door, basically, um, or past their planet. Uh, and, 
it it's it was really interesting to me to watch her struggle with that that um you know if if people don't have any interest in the common good what do you do you know <laughs> it it reminded me of a you know in the phantom menace where obi-wan's telling the gungans you guys are in a symbiont circle and what happens to one of you is going to affect the other like you know you you can't go around sticking your head in the sand forever and expecting that nothing bad's going to come at you. And and the best line in the book on this to me was when Vi was saying that if you keep letting bullies bully other people, eventually they run out of other people. Yeah. And that's the thing. Some of them were like, well, you being here is going to create these bullies to come here. And she's like, no, it's, it's, ju- it's not because I'm here that's going to attract the First Order. They're eventually going to come. So either you be prepared now and deal with it now or not be prepared for when it happens later. And so I thought that was an interesting take on it too, because in a lot of ways I agreed with the people, but too, they're just like, you know, we don't need you. We're not involved in this. The first order isn't here. And, 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 you know, you being here is just going to cause the first order to come and we don't even need you here. We don't need resistance. We don't need a first order. Leave us alone. But yeah, as the galaxy starts to get taken over by the first order, it's going to have some effect. Like you said, this is a spaceport where people are coming in and out. There's some effect that's going to have on Batu eventually. And then the First Order is going to get involved. And then they're going to wish they did have a resistance. So better to deal with it now than to not be ready when they come later. And But then, you know, at the same time, I'm like, well, maybe if I didn't come, maybe nothing would have ever happened. I mean, that's also possible, too. But you got to be prepared. You got to have your defenses ready. Yeah, it was interesting to me because, you know, one of the ways I felt like they kind of answer that question, is the resistance responsible for what happens here on Batu? is the way in which we, you know, tell the stories of, of the places that the First Order has had an impact on, like... uh Zadie, who is just a, a guy running cargo, and he has all the permits he needs, and the First Order still doesn't care. They take his cargo, and then when he gets back to Batu, his ship is impounded because he can't pay the fees he's got to Oga, and he's stuck. All because of the First Order just doing what they want in the galaxy. And that they that story is repeated kind of over and over throughout the the characters we see um, through Archex and others, where it's like the First Order they only care about their own order. In fact, uh, there's a great great um, quote by Zadie when he's in the bar. He says, "Let me say it again: the First Order doesn't care about you. They only care about order and their version of it. It's right there in the name." They only care uh, about leaving no one alive who wishes to stand up to them. And I I love that point. Like, you know, so I think, you know, I struggled with that question in the book. Like, is there resistance responsible what's happening here on Batu? And in the end, the First Order is only going to stop when they think that everybody is under their control. And so sooner or later, they're going to come to Batu. Because it has a reputation of being a place of, not necessarily disorder, but, you know, it's a smuggling town. It's a, it's a wayport for people who come and go. It's not necessarily the world's most orderly place. And they only care about their order. 
And so I, I just really appreciated this idea of like, you cannot keep your head in the sand forever and just expect bullies to not bully you. You have to stand up to them in the end. And I just, I liked that. I thought it was a great theme. Um, and, you know, very reticent to a lot of things that, uh, you know, and applicable to a lot of things that we see in our own world. So I couldn't help but also wonder how big is the First Order? I mean, it almost sounds like at this point that the First Order is control of the galaxy like they are the Empire. Or are they not? Are they just trying to take control? I guess that's what's going to be answered in the next movie. But I, I just have to wonder... You know, if they're not as big as the Empire and they don't have because, you know, just because the the New Republic has been destroyed doesn't mean that all the other planets are going to succumb to the leadership of the First Order. They're all going to fight. But it almost sounds as if in other books or things that I've read that, you know, they do have a huge fleet that they're visit they're stopping at all these other planets and taking things over. And the reason I mention that is because if this is an outpost, there's bigger fish to fry is what I'm getting at. So it could take a long time for the first order to even to have come here. If I didn't show up. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely true. And I think it, it, it just makes for a really interesting conversation. You know, how, how are we responsible for these kind of things? And so, um, yeah, it, I, it, th- what I love about what, Delilah Dawson does in the book is that she asks so many great questions. Like she asks so, and she's, she's laid out so many great themes in the book. And I just really appreciate that kind of work. You know, um, I think it's, it's really important for Star Wars books to, to have more to them than just, uh, entertainment, you know, a lot of times. And I, th- I think she's done that, uh, just such a really great job here with that. And I just really appreciate, um, you know, and you you know me, you've known me long enough that that's one of the things I appreciate the most about uh, any tie in fiction is that, you know, we're we're making people think beyond just this, this small stuff, you know? Um, and, uh, and just there's more to this book than just you know pew pew entertainment so um yeah i guess uh you know bruce that probably brings us to rating uh black spire l post and and what do you think that you would rate this book and by the way i do like pew pew entertainment too um in addition to this but i I I did enjoy the book. It it started off a little slow to me because maybe because I was listening to the audiobook. Again, I'm used to sitting and reading as opposed to listening to books. So the books audiobooks tend to run longer than when I sit and read. I just know every time I got in my car for a while, I'm like, wow, we're still shopping. We're still going back to Batu to get a few more supplies. I'm like, when is something really gonna start to happen? It felt like that way for me near the beginning but uh january lavoie is the narrator of the book and she does a fantastic job but um it did get interesting for me when uh, she was visiting oga and going to oga's cantina and uh when vi was then going uh to find the relic that oga wanted i enjoyed that scene of finding these caverns or the you know this mysterious you know um 
like these ruins that yeah the ancient ruins the ancient yes. ruins so I, I thought that was cool i love that part too and then all the things that we were just talking about really starts to pick up especially in the second half of the book so um overall of course i would say this isn't necessary reading that you know you have to read this book to know what's going on at this point in star wars but i think it's very helpful and i think it's a good read and especially if you're going to uh galaxy's edge or if you have been to galaxy's edge i definitely think it's worth checking out so i would give this two out of the i would give this two out of the three sons a batu wow that's awesome um you know (laughs) we didn't mention that whole part of the book where she has to uh, basically i'm surprised the book wasn't just called vi moretti in the temple of doom yes (laughs) uh and so because i really enjoyed that part uh, and i love when she's like I'm not an archaeologist, you know, it reminded me of Bones. I'm not a, you know, bricklayer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a doctor. Um, You know, she's she's like, I'm not a I'm not an archaeologist. I'm a spy. I don't know. Uh, So that whole part was was enjoyable, too. I, I, I was just really surprised how much I enjoyed this book. I've read it twice now because I read it for the review when I got the review copy and uh, I, then I read it again before just to kind of make sure I was fresh on everything. And part of me rereading was I wanted to reread it again. I just enjoyed the book so much. And I would say, you know, I think this is a great way to kind of get you ready for The Rise of Skywalker as well, just to bridge that gap. It's it's filling that in. It's doing what, um, you know, expanded universe material is supposed to do is expanding the universe. It's expanding the story. It's expanding what you know of Galaxy's Edge as well, as well as the movie to come. So all of that together, you know, I give this a good four out of five uh, blue milks. You know, this is this is great stuff. So I just thoroughly enjoyed it just as a story. But I mean, the fact that we spent, I think, the majority of this podcast talking about the thematic elements of the story just show you how strong the book is and any tie-in fiction work where I'm spending that much time talking about thematic elements means that the author, to me, has done their job because they've transcended it just being about tie-in fiction to something more. And I think, you know, that's good. That's that's kind of what you want these authors to do. So I'm really uh, appreciative of, of Delilah and her storytelling abilities. And she's on a roll. I mean, she did... Phasma, which I thought was a great book. Regardless of the character, that book was great. Yes, yes it was. She followed it up with this. Um, And the next book uh, she has coming out uh, is she did the uh, retelling of the entire Skywalker saga, minus the rise of Skywalker, uh, kind of in a fairy tale way. It's a storybook for kids. So I'm really interested to kind of actually look at that and see how her takes on the story as she kind of retells them through the lens of of kind of seeing them almost as fairy tale. So that yeah, she's she's to me becoming one of those authors where it's like if she's done something in Star Wars like Claudia Gray, I'll pick up whatever Claudia Gray writes Star Wars wise, you know. Delilah Dawson's becoming that for me too. So, uh, I'm really impressed. But now it's time for recommendations. And Bruce, I'm wondering what you would like to recommend to everybody here on the 602 Club. Okay. 
So I recommend, because I'm on literary treks, I'm going <laughs> to recommend a Star Trek book. And it's written by our friend here on Trek FM, Aaron Harvey. It's the uh, guide. I can't remember the official name of it, but it's the official guide to the animated series, Star Trek, the animated series. So I've been reading that as I was doing a rewatch of the animated series. And I have to tell you, you know, years ago, I watched some of the animated series of Star Trek and I thought it was, you know, I thought it was good. And then if there was other ones I thought were a bit of a stretch and a little cartoonish, but now I watch it and I thought, you know, it's actually better than what I remembered. And his book really adds a lot to it. And, uh, he also, uh, so it's not just Aaron Harvey. He wasn't the only one who wrote the book, but it's Rich Shepitz. Shepes, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, but anyway, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. So uh, it goes through the history of the animated series, and then it's got, you know, it goes through each episode, gives you a summary, gives you some inside info, uh, you know, mistakes in the episode, little bloopers or whatever, and just little fun facts. So it's it's a good read. Man, that's awesome. Uh, I, I knew that that came out, and uh, you guys are having on literary tracks too, so a little yeah. cross-promotion there. You guys uh, should definitely check that out when uh, Aaron is on. It would definitely be worth the listen. Um, and, you know, I'd say the animated series has uh, definitely at least a few gems in it. Yes. Um, for sure. There's some actually, I would call, great episodes of the animated series. So, yeah, that's fun. We don't talk about Star Trek on this show, so not, thanks for breaking the rules, Bruce. Um, oh, wait, I'll give too... you another recommendation then. No, I'm <laughs> just, just teasing. <laughs> No, that's awesome. Uh, I'm going to recommend something that, you know, we've been recommending shows and movies, but something that um, good friend Nick Anastasio brought to my attention was a podcast called Blockbuster and a six part audio drama series about the rise of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg uh, in their very beginning of their career. It's I loved it. I just had so much fun listening to it. Uh, watching these guys rise to stardom, the struggles that it took for them to get where they are um, to make it big is just fantastic. And I think it gave me a whole new appreciation for them, uh, uh, just what they went through and, and how hard they had to work to get where they were to create what we know as the blockbuster. And so I just highly recommend that to everybody. So uh, Bruce, uh, if anybody wants to catch up with you and see what else is going on with literary treks and everything else, uh, Star Wars wise, because uh, you're also doing some Star Wars stuff in other places, where can people find you? Oh, you know, I'm glad you asked that, Matt, because that's actually my recommendation, and that is to listen to the Star Wars report. <laughs> so I'm on there, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, but only when you're on, right? Yeah, only when, j- just listen to episodes. I'm on. I'm on. If I'm not on, then you know, what? Yeah, listen to those two, I guess. But anyway, I'm also, of course, here on Literary Treks with Dan Gunther here on the Trek FM network, and I do a live show live from the edge with Brandy Jacola or Brandy Jacula, whatever she wants to pronounce her last name at that moment. Uh, and those are the night after a, a premiere of Discovery. So we haven't done one in a while, of course, but with short treks coming up, we will be doing those soon. And I think that's everywhere I am except. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and I'm always in the Babel Conference. And you uh, can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, I'm here on the network doing The Orb when Chris Jones and I get a chance to record. We're talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. 
I'm over on the Nerd Party Network. As we mentioned uh, earlier, I do two shows there. One of them, of course, is Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills. If you have uh, any desire to check that out, I encourage you, if you love Star Wars, it's a show for you. We did just revisit The Last Jedi and kind of our thoughts on that. Neither of us had seen the movie in about a year, so we tried to go in as fresh as possible. Uh, you can also find me doing Owl Post with Drea Kaufman, where we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. We finished The Order of the Phoenix and now are moving on to The Half-Blood Prince. And then last but not least, I'm doing a show with my good friend Courtney called Cinema Stories, and that is where we talk about films through the ones of faith. We want to say thank you so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you. <laughs>